welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, New Mexico and Montana, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the Coalition's Managing Editor, and today we'll hear about medical debt, which impacts millions of people in the Rocky Mountain region. We interviewed a young father in Denver who essentially spent most of his 20s living with family and sleeping on couches with his young children because his credit had been destroyed by a heart attack that he had when he was 19. Then History Colorado finds burial sites at Fort Lewis Indian Boarding School. There was harm done at the Fort Lewis Indian Boarding School in the report that the cemetery has been discovered. Um, that, that's, that's hard news for people. Then a famous Wyoming author talks about his latest book, the 19th in the best-selling Longmire series. The way that I describe Walt is, if I'm out here in a blizzard on I-25 and my truck slides off the road, you know, in the middle of the night, that pair of headlights that's coming up behind me, I want Walt Longmire to be in that truck is what I want. From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau estimates that people in the US paid $1 billion in deferred interest on medical debt between 2018 and 2020. Millions of Americans are carrying some form of debt related to medical or dental treatment. This is according to reports by Noam Levy, who's written extensively on the issue for KFF Health News. In a recent report for NPR and KFF Health News, Levy took a look at how the issue is impacting people in Colorado. Levy says medical debt comes in many different forms. Well, so traditionally, I think people have thought medical debt is a medical bill that ends up on someone's credit report because they couldn't pay it. But I think we have to sort of think about medical debt being a much bigger problem in the sense that Yes, that's true for many, many millions of Americans. It, there are medical bills they can't pay and they get reported to a credit agency and it ends up on their credit score. But uh, we're also talking about medical bills that people may put on their credit card and then not be able to pay off for months or years uh, at a time. We're talking about payment plans that people are forced to go on if they go to the hospital or they go to a doctor's office or a dentist's office, they can't pay their bill. And they go on one of these payment plans where they pay a few hundred dollars every month. And we're also talking about other kinds of loans that people take out to pay their medical bills. Sometimes those can be payday loans with really high interest rates. Sometimes they may be borrowing from friends and family where there's sort of an expectation that maybe it gets paid off at some point, but they're in debt. And when you put all that together, you've you end up with about 100 million people in this country that have some form of medical uh, or dental debt. One misconception I think that exists around medical debt is that this is only something that impacts people who have no health insurance. That if you have health insurance, you're not going to be falling into these issues because your insurance company will pay for it. I know that that's not the case. So talk us through that. Yeah, I think that's because historically that was where a lot of the focus on medical debt and sort of the the, the catastrophic things that can happen to people if they have a, a large medical bill. It was historically focused on people who didn't have health insurance because before the Affordable Care Act, 
before Obamacare passed in, in 2010, you know, as much as 20% of Americans didn't have health insurance at some point during, uh, during the year. And so there were tens of millions of people in this country didn't have health insurance. But what we've what we've learned since the Affordable Care Act was implemented is that tens of millions of people have gained health insurance through that law. So now, you know, the uninsured rate in this country is below 10%. It's at a historically low um, number. But unfortunately, one thing that's happened over the last 10 or 20 years is that more and more Americans have moved into these higher deductible health insurance plans where people have to pay thousands of dollars out of pocket before their health insurance kicks in, or they run into problems where maybe they go to a provider that's not in their network, and then they end up stuck with thousands of dollars in medical bills. So this is actually a much larger problem for people who are underinsured than it is for people who are uninsured in America. Take us through how this disproportionately impacts certain groups, because of course everybody is vulnerable to having a medical emergency and then having some kind of debt. But the reality is it's playing out in significant ways in certain communities more than others. It's true. And, and, I, and I do think it is important to note that, that there, there are two things about who medical debt impacts that are important. Number one is it does impact everybody. The majority of people who have medical debt actually have health insurance. And we found that, you know, more than half of Americans from households that make more than $90,000 a year have had some form of health care debt in the last five years. So this is not just a problem of the uninsured, of the poor, et cetera. But you are correct. It does more um, dramatically impact certain populations. We know, for example, that um, black communities are 50% more likely to be uh, impacted by healthcare debt than um, non, non-Black non uh, communities. We know that lower income people have a higher impact of medical debt. And interestingly, the thing that we found, I think that's sort of in some ways most disturbing about medical debt in America is that when you look at where medical debt is concentrated, and it's, it's highest in the South, these are states that have not expanded the Medicaid safety net through the Affordable Care Act. So there's lower, there's a much weaker healthcare safety net in most of those states. But the thing that 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 is the best predictor of medical debt in a community is how sick people are there. So when you look at the incidence of chronic disease, of diabetes, heart disease, cancer, and you look at how high those levels are in U.S. counties, the counties that have the highest level of chronic disease the high, the sickest populations also have the the, the highest uh, amount of medical debt. Well, take us through your findings here in Colorado. I know you were able to access data gathered by the Urban Institute on where medical debt is most prominent. What did you find here in this region? So, when you look at racial disparities in medical debt nationally, it's true that communities of color um, have uh, quite a bit more medical debt than white communities. Um, but the disparity is about four percentage points, 15% um, in, in um, communities of color versus 11% uh, in white communities. And those, those numbers are slightly lower than the numbers that we were talking about earlier because that's only capturing medical debt that is on people's credit scores. But it's a pretty good proxy for the broader picture uh, of medical debt. So 15% communities of color nationally, 11% 
in white communities. In Colorado, the picture is, 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 is even more pronounced. So while the overall share of adults with medical debt in collections is slightly lower than it is nationally, you get 19% uh, medical debt in communities of color compared to 9% in white communities. So a 10 percentage point disparity compared to a 4 percentage point disparity nationally. As you mentioned earlier, there are certain communities that have higher loads of debt. And you said that in Colorado, that's really significant when it comes to racial disparities. Take us through some of the specific counties that you're seeing this play out. And also tell us some of the stories of how this medical debt is impacting people here in Colorado. Let me talk first uh, a little bit about the the geographic disparities. Again, this is relying on medical uh, debt that end up on people's uh, credit scores. There's a handful of counties in the sort of southern, southeastern part of Colorado where you've got particularly high levels of debt. You've, when you look at Los Animas County, for example, uh, in the southern part of Colorado, the uh, Urban Institute found uh, in its data that 22%, so basically one in five people have some medical debt uh, in in collections compared to 11% for the statewide average. Next door in Bent County, similarly about one in five have a, a medical bill uh, in collections. And then, you know, in the greater Denver area, Denver is slightly higher. You've got about 14% medical debt in collections compared to 11% statewide. Next door in Boulder, 8%. So, so you are seeing quite a bit of uh, disparities around the state. Now, in terms of impact, you know, one of the things that I think is really important to understand about medical debt is that it truly wreaks havoc with people's lives in ways that I think people may not understand. And in the net, in the poll that we did, we found that more than half of Americans who have medical have healthcare debt have said they've had to make uh, a difficult sacrifice as a result of that. Almost two thirds cut spending on food, clothing, or other basics. Forty percent took on extra work. One in five had to change their living situation, such as moving in with, with friends and family. And about one in seven said they were denied uh, medical care um, by a provider as a result of, of being in debt. And one of the things that we did in our project um, nationally as well as in Colorado was to look at kind of particularly what these kinds of impacts mean for people in a very personal way. And we've interviewed probably hundreds of people who've lived with medical debt. We looked in Colorado specifically at one particularly, I think, pernicious part of the medical debt story, which is that because medical debt erodes people's credit scores, it can make it very difficult to rent an apartment or get a mortgage. And so what you, what you oftentimes see happening is that people will run up a large medical bill, which they can't afford. And then this will make it more difficult for them to get stable housing. And that can in turn create healthcare problems for, for people who may not have a stable place to live. In the worst cases, of course, people end up homeless and, and living on the streets. But we, we interview people who sort of have been forced to move into smaller apartments with their families as they're as they're paying off this medical debt because they can't shoulder all of the costs. We uh, interviewed a, a young father in Denver who essentially spent most of his twenties living with family and sleeping on 
couches uh, with friends with his young children because his credit had been destroyed by a heart attack that he had when he was 19. This is particularly problematic in places like Denver where there's obviously a huge affordability problem. You've got medical debt essentially adding fuel to that fire. What role do hospitals play in this? Either writing off debt or pursuing debt? You mentioned earlier that a lot of debt ends up with a collections agency and that can really become problematic. So what are, what is the role of hospitals? So unfortunately, hospitals and other medical providers are very directly feeding this problem. And we know that um, nonprofit hospitals particularly are charged with um, providing charity care, essentially, to people who cannot afford their medical bills. And there are federal rules that require hospitals to provide information to patients, alerting them how they can access charity care if they can't afford their medical bill. But the problem with this system is that, number one, many hospitals make it very difficult for patients to find out if they can access this care. Just it's difficult to find the information on the website. They may say you can access this, but then it's difficult to get all the information. The application process can be incredibly laborious. You have many hospitals that require not just information about people's income, but they want information about bank accounts, about retirement accounts, about people's cars. In one case in Colorado, we found a hospital that wanted to know if people had a, uh, had a GoFundMe account set up to help pay their medical bills and that that should be factored in whether or not they will qualify for financial assistance. And the result of sort of putting up all of these barriers is that many patients just give up and they, they don't go through the process. We have anecdotes that people are afraid if they put their cars, their information about their cars down, will they potentially lose their cars to the hospital? The other thing that we found is that unfortunately, some hospitals are very aggressive about how they will go after patients uh, who can't or won't pay. Hospitals file lawsuits against patients. They will garnish their wages. They will put liens on their property. In some cases, they will sell patients' medical debt to third-party debt companies that basically are completely separated from the hospital, so there's very little accountability. One of the, wor- one of the most aggressive, most litigious hospitals in Colorado is the University of Colorado system. And so many patients find themselves sort of facing an enormous amount of stress as they're pursued very aggressively by hospitals seeking to, to get money that they claim they're owed. I know there was legislation that was passed recently through the Colorado State Legislature around medical debt. Can you talk us through that was and what that will do to this issue? So Colorado um, has been one of the more active states in terms of expanding protections for patients. And you're right, during the last legislative session, the legislature passed a trailblazing bill to protect Colorado patients from having medical debt show up on their credit scores. And how this is implemented is going to be an interesting question, but potentially what this means is that somebody who has outstanding medical bills would no longer have their credit score depressed by having this outstanding medical bill, which could potentially protect at least some people from the difficulties of getting an apartment or getting a mortgage and doing other kinds of borrowing. 
And you can find more about Noam Levy's reporting on medical debt at kffhealthnews.org. You're listening to the Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. A long-awaited summary of the experiences of Indigenous people at the Fort Lewis Indian Boarding School in Durango was released this month by History Colorado. The document was written in agreement with the Federal Indian Boarding School Research Programme and House Bill 1327, which was signed into law last May. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KSUT Tribal Radio's Sarah Flower reports. Through this law, History Colorado was directed to conduct an intensive research program that focused on the Fort Lewis Indian Boarding School. The executive summary identifies nine institutions in Colorado that were financially supported by the federal government, known today as the Bureau of Indian Affairs. In those 40 years, the nine schools included in the report are Ignacio School, Grand Junction Indian Boarding School, State Industrial School for Boys, the Fort Lewis College Indian Boarding School, Southern Ute Boarding School, Navajo Day School, Allen Day School, Toyok Day School, and the Good Shepherd Industrial School for Girls, which was the only school identified that was managed by the Catholic Church. A sad truth that History Colorado's research unveils is that the burial sites for children who died while attending Fort Lewis Indian Boarding School were found. President of Fort Lewis College Tom Sturdicus says supporting students during this difficult time is imperative to healing. This news is known. This is traumatizing for for students. So we want to make sure we're making space. Um, We want to make sure that we're respectful. People process different news in in different ways. Even the preamble of the bill reiterating that there was harm done at the Fort Lewis Indian Boarding School in the report that the cemetery has been discovered. Um, That's that's hard news for people. And we want to give students, faculty, and staff, alumni space to process that news. We want our students to know that we have resources for them on campus. Our, our messaging has been really clear about that. You know, we're just using good EQ. We're not prying. We're not asking questions. But if people need support, we're going to be there to support them. As this information is being shared on campus, Stridicus says Fort Lewis College will be providing resources at the Counseling Center to help students who may need support. In the summary done by History Colorado, it also found that students at the Fort Lewis Indian School were subject to agricultural labor and large portions of their day were related to doing work that kept the school fed and running and also doing domestic chores like laundry. History Colorado says that the full detailed report will be released to the public on October 3rd after tribal nations that are impacted by this history, namely the Southern Ute and Ute Mountain tribes, have had time to process and review the findings, which that is consistent to the government-to-government relationships within tribal nations. The summary also states that there will be a detail to the boundaries of the cemetery that were found at the site of the Fort Lewis Indian Boarding School. Stridicus's administration is the first in the college's history to really tackle the checkered past of the college being an Indian boarding school. Stridicus says facing these truths from the past will grow a healthier future. That history, that trauma, is not the same thing as saying, you know, our Native American students come to Fort Lewis and have amazing gifts to offer. Native American students are here in the present. 
So for Fort Lewis, we have to be clear-eyed about the past so that we can be clear-eyed about where we're going. Reporting for KSUT Tribal Radio, I'm Sarah Flower. Craig Johnson is the author of the Wyoming Mystery best-selling series of books that feature Sheriff Walt Longmire. The 19th book in that series has just been published, The Longmire Defense. In addition to the books, Longmire was also a Netflix series. KGNU's Diana Corte, host of the show Book Talk, talked to Craig Johnson from his Wyoming home about the new book that takes readers deep into the heart of the Wyoming countryside. Craig, welcome back to Book Talk. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. What's happening as the book opens up? Well, what's happening is is that Walt is involved with a uh, search and rescue operation, um, which is you know not unusual here in Wyoming. Like that, that's kind of one of the fun parts of uh, writing about a Wyoming sheriff is is that I'm not stuck with just a homicide investigator who's just doing nothing but homicide investigations and processing homicides like that. And so, you know, you know a sheriff's job is is as multiple you know layers like that, and and one of them is a search and rescue, especially when you're this close to the Bighorn Mountains, you know, to an area as big as Vermont, like that, and, uh, you know, has mountains in it almost 14,000 feet, like that. People sometimes get in there and lose their way. And so Walt has to go after uh, this one woman whose car has gone off the road, and she's left her car, like that, and as he's up there, he stumbles onto a rifle that's been left in this one specific spot in the Bighorn Mountains. And uh, it's that's also not unusual. Like, an awful lot of times, you know, hunters get excitable, set their rifle down, walk away, and, you know, it gets lost to antiquity. The interesting thing about this one is is it's caliber. It's a 300 H&H Magnum, which is a very experimental type of caliber in the period in time when this weapon was built. And it leads back, you know, to a specific uh, that Walt's father uh, told him about. And that was a case where this uh, state accountant by the name of Bill Sutherland was actually killed. Um, back in 1948, and they suspect that it might have been a murder, but there was no way to find out who it was that did it because there was no way to find the weapon. Well, when Walt finds that weapon, he uh, actually starts digging up this cold case about Bill Sutherland and trying to find out who it is that might have killed him. Like that. And I like to think of Walt as being a very even-handed, you know, fair-minded uh, detective, you know, where he's a firm believer in the the credo that uh, until proven guilty, until he discovers that this weapon actually belonged to his grandfather, Lloyd Longmire, which sets him off on a very different kind of investigation. Well, what was the history between the two men? You know, it's been a rocky road like that between Walt and his grandfather over the years, and you know, and, and kind of uh, intimated like as to what that relationship was like, and that there were quite a few mysteries, you know, involved between the two men, and I think that they were. They suffered from being too much alike. They were, they were very much alike. Like, I think that made it very difficult for them to see eye to eye. And one of the only places that they actually did see eye to eye was on a chessboard whenever Walt's grandfather was attempting to try and teach him how to think and how to think, you know, maybe one or two moves ahead of, you know, his opponent, which turned out to be some pretty valuable abilities like that when he became the sheriff of Absaroka County. It's interesting because Walt thinks he knows his grandfather pretty well, but as it turns out, and the the book develops, like that, he he maybe learns that there was more to the man than than first met the eye. How did the idea of this particular book come to you? 
You know, there were two different things. Like uh, there was actually a newspaper article about a, a weapon that had been found up in the Bighorns. An awful lot of my books tend to come from newspaper articles. Yeah, when I first started out, you know, and Viking Penguin said, Do we think you should consider doing this as a series. That scared me to death like that. I mean, I'd written one book. I didn't even know if I could write a second book, for the sake. Like, and, and so they wanted a whole series of books. Like, and so I had to think about that for a while. But one of the, the saviors of that situation was is that almost all of my books tend to come from newspaper articles. There's some sort of catalyst from a newspaper article, you know, from here in Wyoming or up in Montana or South Dakota, Utah, you know, Colorado, Idaho. They, they provide an awful lot of interesting ideas for me. Like, at, I, mean, I think I've got a, a file folder that's about a foot thick. Like, at, and so my worry now is that I'm not going to get all those stories written, not that, like, you know, that I'm going to run out of it. And so that was one, like, a, this rifle had been found up in the mountains. And then there was another author by the name of Elmer Keith. He wrote, you know, back in, like, the 20s and 30s and leading up into the, the 40s. He was a big game hunter. He was a cowboy. He was an outfitter like that, and a remarkable writer. Wrote a lot about outdoors activities like that, fishing, hunting, that type of thing. It was a story that he told in one of the autobiographical books called Hell, I Was There. Um, And it was about the state accountant for the state of Montana who was killed, you know, in a hunting accident. And, you know, Elmer kind of like makes it clear that in his mind, it was not a mistake that what happened was is that he came back from World War One and caught some of these guys like that, that were in the Treasury Department there in Montana doing things that they shouldn't have been doing. And so the only way they knew to get rid of it was to get rid of it. And so they did. And that, that story, he doesn't name names like that, but that story stuck with me. It kind of hung with me over the years like that because it just seemed so horrific like that, that these individuals had done what it was that they did. And so it was just a question of finding the right, situation for the characters and the right timing and everything, you know, for that story, for that plot line to be developed and be able to tell the story that I wanted to tell like that. And uh, the Longmire defense was that book. Longmire remains one of the most watched drama series on Netflix. How do you explain its staying power? (laughs) That's a really good question. And, uh, I don't know if I have a really good answer for it like that. I mean, I'd like to think that it has something to do, you know, with the characters, uh, very specifically with Walt. You know, I think that, you know, obviously if the show's called Longmire, then, you know, obviously Walt is going to be a large portion of that. And I think that, you know, in many ways, he's kind of a throwback. I mean, I've been doing a lot of these interviews today like that, and I've had so many people tell me that, you know, the, the show was kind of perfectly placed for COVID um, because people were looking for something that was a little bit reassuring you know, in a time that seemed extraordinarily unsure. And, you know, Walt does harken back, you know, to a lot of those cowboy characters, you know, that had a, you know, that have a literal code, like of right and wrong. like that. And I'm not saying that Walt's perfect in any ways. As a matter of fact, some of Walt's faults, you know, are some of his more appealing uh, character aspects like that. But he, he's a decent guy. He's a, he's a good guy who's going to try and do the right thing. I mean, the way that I describe Walt is if I'm out here in a blizzard, on I-25 and my truck slides off the road, you know, in the middle of the night, that pair of headlights that's coming up behind me, I want Walt Longmire to be in that truck is what I want. I want that guy. And so I think a lot of people have responded to that, you know, and took a certain amount of solace in the fact that there are going to be people out there that are going to try and do the right thing for the right reasons. You know, it's, uh, and it continues, you know, with the television series, you know, having been off the air for like, we had about six years now, and then Every week or every other week, like if we're one of the top 10 to 20 shows on Netflix, like, and yeah. so, uh, 
who knows what'll happen? Maybe Warner Brothers will come out of its stupor and realize like that uh, maybe we need some more episodes of this or maybe some TV movies because it's for sure like that that the uh, the actors have made it very clear to me here in Longmire days where we have a festival, you know, for Longmire, uh, that they would be tickled to death, you know, to put, you know, get back in the saddle and put their boots back. Well, thank you. My guest is Craig Johnson, author of The Longmire Defense, published by Viking. This is Diana Cordy with Book Talk. Thank you so much. You can find this interview with Greg Johnson and past episodes of Book Talk at kgmu.org. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to Diana and Jean Corte, host and producer of Book Talk from KGNU, and Sarah Flowers from KSUT Tribal Radio for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.